Welcome back. Thanks for joining us on Engineers. We've got the fabulous Gusto here. We've got two lovely chaps, Andrea. We've also got Abu with us. They're going to tell you a little bit about Gusto, what the business is doing, and their roles individually. So, Andrea, do you want to yeah. kick us off? Yeah, I'm one of the engineering managers here. Cool. Cool. Uh, Abu, uh, I'm an architect here, um, working with all of our engineering teams help build stuff. Nice. Yeah. And uh, if you want to know how, what we do as a business. Do it. Um, so we, for those who don't know, we are a recipe box company. Yeah. So we provide our customers on our website and apps mm -hmm. with a brand new menu with 50 plus recipes every week. Yeah. Which we also recommend through our recommendation engine. Yeah. And then um, we actually create our recipes right here in this office. Downstairs we have a big kitchen with a, a whole team building new recipes every week. Yeah. And then we buy fresh ingredients, we pack into boxes and we ship to the customer's front door. Okay. So I, other people that will be watching this, no doubt understand Gusto um, to the nth degree or what we think we see. I think what everyone will be really interested to understand is, tell us a little bit about some of the technical challenges actually building a food recipe company and delivering those boxes and what happens from a logistics perspective do you want to go for it okay um so i mean like we build um most of our tech in in-house so yep. we've got um nine i think product teams now who build yep. pretty much entire end-to-end -end of our platform all the way from um sort of procurement planning process to um, the e-commerce side of things, um, how customers um, find out, get our recipes, trace orders, etc. Mm -hmm. um, then all the way to the, the fulfillment side of things. So in our warehouse, picking up the boxes. The only bit we don't do is actually delivering them. Um, so we work with um, different couriers and logistics companies. To, nice. To, to okay. that. But the rest, yeah, the rest of that is all in-house tech that we build. So even from an architecture standpoint or a tech stack standpoint do you want to tell us a little bit about the journey and how that's equally evolved over the time that you've been with the business and how you've helped spearhead that with some of the teams sure um i'd probably start from a um like a tech perspective and yeah. andrea can sort of put in some of the, right. sort of the, the, the team growth that's happened um so i mean we, we run microservice architecture today but it's not always been microservice i think when we started it was 2012 when we originally started, it was you know, literally just a server running in Timo's house somewhere. Uh, Timo's <laughs> our CEO, by the way. Um, so it's it's it was a very, very um, basic tech stack to get us off the ground. Um, yeah. Really, our modern um, architecture as we know it today started off in about 2015, um, where we sort of invested in building out a... Um, uh, a kind of CI/CD platform using infrastructure as code, um, deploying into AWS, um, and really starting on uh, sort of a microservice journey. Um, and today we run probably a hundred plus microservices. I think last count was about one hundred and thirty okay. microservices in, in production. Um, that's using a mix of um, serverless architecture, um, some containers, some traditional EC2 instances. Um, and as we said, we've got our, uh, our warehouse fulfillment operations as yeah. well that we build in-house. We've got some hardware there that we can integrate with to 
pick, send boxes down the line and put labels on them, etc. Okay. Um, so, so with that amount of microservice there, okay, how do you decide to put some in EC2 or cluster those? What, what's your thinking behind that? And I guess, you know, I'm going to get on to the next moment with Andrea in regards to how does that affect product teams and people, but be really useful to understand, you know, why and how you did things that way. Yeah, so I think coming back to your, I realized I didn't ask your first question was what the challenge is. So I think because we all, we didn't start off with the Microsoft architecture, um, it's kind of, we did some initial foundation work and it's kind of then grew organically over time. Yep. Um, initially, there wasn't much thought put into um, I guess what is a microservice? What does that look like sure. um, from a sort of an infrastructure point of view, yep. as, as well as from a sort of a domain um, point of view? What what is responsibilities? How do you draw your domain boundaries around it? Um, because there wasn't that initial thinking. Part I guess mostly because we we're growing really really fast, yep. um, and we needed to get um, new features to our customers so that. We could grow. Um, yeah. That's that caused over the, the I guess the last five years or so uh, a few sort of pain points in our in our in our growth around um, dependencies between teams because yeah. um, we haven't drawn the domain boundaries correctly. Um, that that those dependencies also exist not just between teams but between systems that teams own. Sure. Um, um, we. It's part of our architecture that kind of looks like a distributed monolith. Um, and so when we get big spikes in traffic, you end up with cascading failures. Okay. And because those systems are owned by different teams, um, there's, I guess, confusion over who's responsible for which part of the system. Gotcha. Um, and so, yeah, there's been challenges around, um, our, I guess, the organic growth that happened over the last couple of years with, with our microservices. Um, that way, we, we've now sold and still solving, but um, yeah, well, I guess we'll get into. We'll get into yeah, that we'll get into and some point of failure. Yeah, from an organizational perspective, yeah. imagine Augusto is eight years old and over eight years we've grown to over 500 employees over two different sites. And yeah. we're planning to keep growing and hire 700 more over the, by 2022 actually. Wow. So you can imagine how from a tech team perspective, we are coming from a world where you know one single tech team was enough, mm -hmm. so it was quite a flat structure, of course. And yeah. then uh, I think by the time that Abu joined around four years ago, yeah. we already had two squads, so we have start, started splitting the tech team into okay. multiple squads. When I joined around one and a half years ago, I think we had around three, four squads or yeah. something like that. And uh, of course, it was a very different world where. Um, we would receive requirements from other parts of the business. Uh, we, we wouldn't be really involved in defining those requirements. We yep. would be just asked to deliver features and stuff like that. It would be quite difficult to prioritize because we would have to deliver boxes and fulfill the orders at the same time support, you know, new capabilities, new functionalities. And so it was very difficult to prioritize accordingly yep. to, according that, to the demand, let's say, that was coming from the rest of the business. Uh, in terms of ways of working, we had these squads that were scrum teams mostly. Okay. We had a centralized, like one single scrum master was basically running scrum for all these teams. Yeah. So you can imagine how these, as we scale, this comes with a lot of challenges. So we'll get into how we solve them. 
please. Dawn. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> In terms of the, the challenges of product ownership or team ownership, how have you dealt with some of that over the last 18 months? And how have you dealt with that or continued to deal with that with the scale of the business on quite clearly an upward trajectory? Yeah. So over the last year, I would say, we basically moved from specific squads, which were like functional squads, so engineering mostly, yeah. to cross-functional squads and now tribes as well. Yeah. So the way we've done that, we started with uh, cross-functional squads within tech, which yeah. means product people, engineering, data science were needed, design if needed. And then we started including other parts of the business. Today we have a model with tribes that is basically uh, spanning all across the business. So I can actually go a bit, a bit into more detail. So we have in particular three different tribes. We have a, a tribe that is built around growth. So they look after customer acquisition and retention. Yeah. As you can imagine, they are very, very involved with people from marketing and customer care. Yeah. Then we have a tribe that is making sure that we can offer the best food proposition on our menu and marketplace to our customers. Mm -hmm. And they obviously work really closely with our food team. And then we have a tribe that is making sure that we can actually fulfill the orders. So working with people uh, in operations to optimize our supply chain. So you can see how this is basically involving the whole business. And uh, what's, what's interesting is this doesn't only come with working together. This also yeah. comes with actually decide, deciding on the objectives together, understanding okay. what's the highest priority for the business going into the next quarter or into the next year. In order to do that, we use a system called OKRs. I'm sure you heard about yeah, yeah. objectives and key results which we use mostly as a tool for alignment, so to design what the most important things to work on next. We try to work on a really outcome-focused way, so that basically we kind of meet in the middle, so the OKRs of course come from some, um, you know, uh, thinking and decision-making happening at the leadership level, yep. but then it's uh, also a bottom-up process as well. So again, because we talk about outcomes, then basically we give a lot of autonomy to the squads to kind of figure out how to solve the problems that we agree that need solving. That's more or less the idea. Okay, so uh, let me just understand this. So leadership have a direction in terms of where maybe they want the product to go, but teams actually have the autonomy to be able to decide how to hit that jet objective and work together. Is that what you try and empower teams to do? Yes, to some extent, I would say that in some specific occasions, we know a bit more in detail from a business perspective what we want, for example, what capability we want to offer our yeah. customers. And so um, it's not just, you know, just blue sky thinking, <laughs> whatever we want to build, we build. There is some direction, of course. Okay. Yeah. What, what do you two think the benefit of cross-functional and product-driven teams are? It's, I wouldn't say... Let's just move away from the word fashionable, but microservice, like we said, has obviously come into play and cross-functional product-driven teams. Maybe yeah. this is one for you, but what, why do you think that is such a good way to be positioned? I think it's actually interconnected. So from my perspective, I think what's really important is we have defined clear domain boundaries. So I walked you through the tribes, but then within yeah. the tribes, we also have squads. So which means these three domains that I described, they are split into subdomains. So a squad is really empowered to influence their own domain. They have domain ownership. They, they are the, the domain experts, really. 
And so this is really something that is in improving, increasing the level of autonomy within a squad. Okay. And I think this goes with what Abu, I'm sure, wants to say around architecture. I mean, as before I get into maybe architecture, I just want to steal Andrea's thunder and say yeah. one probably key bit is, I think, cross-functional, working in a cross-functional way but really goes hand-in-hand hand with working in an agile and lean way. Yeah. Ultimately, you want to iterate very quickly and really shorten the feedback loop that you get from releasing a product and working cross-functionally helps to shorten the feedback loop because you're working you're not building stuff and giving it stakeholders you're working directly with them in collaboration to build whatever yeah. you're building um, and that really significantly helps like it's make make decisions and shorten the feedback loop when you want to get feedback from customers and other people who are going to use your, okay. your software. Well, what would you think the the key points of pain are for both of you, day to day, week by week, when it comes to scalability from tech and from maybe a team or product perspective? I'd be really quite interested to understand that, and I think everyone else would be. Um, so I think. So for me, um, my roles evolved. Um, so when I, I mean when I joined, I was quite hands-on. I was within just within one team. I mean, yeah. two teams back then, but I was within one team, focused um, with my head down in on what the features we were trying to build. Um, my roles evolved since then, and looking more at the bigger picture and the longer-term yeah. picture. Um, the biggest um, challenge around scaling has been, as I said, we. I guess the initial growth of a Microsoft was quite organic. So it's been working out um, longer term where we want to take our our platform um, from not just from a technology point of view, but from a business product point of view as well. Um, and working out how to have principles in place okay. um, to, I guess, guide the engineers on how to build build our systems, build our microservices okay. um, in a more, don't want to use the word scalable, but in a way that means we can deal with our growth okay. um, in a more controlled way. Um, so, if, I mean, for example, um, some, of the some of the principles that we've um, introduced in, in terms of how we build software is um, that we moved away from using... So by our, our pattern by default was we build microservices and they all talk to each other over yeah. um, REST uh, using API requests. Um, we've moved away from that. And one of our, the, the principle that we actually call out loud is asynchronous by default, synchronous when necessary. So okay. one of the, we, we try to use asynchronous event-driven architecture um, as much as possible. because that makes, it makes your systems more loosely coupled. Okay. Um, you can, I guess, change um, individual systems um, without having a direct impact on okay. the system that are dependent on it. And that gives teams, I guess, the teams that own those, those systems a um, bit more autonomy and freedom over how they want to evolve them. Okay. Um, and that helps with scalability because you get teams get more autonomy over what they want to do to those systems. Yeah. It helps them move faster and iterate faster. Um, obviously, there are still some dependencies between systems. Obviously, we've, we've got a um, 
um, I guess an e-commerce platform that we're running and there's some common things like recipes or orders or a customer, what a customer is that need to exist, exist across multiple um, products. So there are dependencies, but building your, our systems in a more sort of loosely coupled way using asynchronous architecture um, by default using events um, helps loosen those dependencies so that individual teams can like move that. themselves faster. And the other the other principle that we've actually introduced um, is I guess not principle, more of a concept. We call yep. it data bulk heading. Um, so it's this idea of inverting dependencies between systems. So let's say you've got a uh, a recipe system that looks after recipes. Um, in a more say in a more traditional architecture, you might have let's say your order system that stores orders make a call out to your recipe yep. system to get details of recipe. But using data bulk heading, we're inverting that dependency. So recipes or yeah, recipes doesn't care about who's using its data. Whenever a recipe changes or is created, we push an event out into our uh, uh, our message bus. And then any system that cares about it takes it and stores a copy of that data that's sort of repurposed or optimized for its own use. Um, and we call that data bulk heading. So we're pushing the data into the systems that need it rather than pulling it. Okay. Um, and that's, that inverts dependency and also helps um, give those systems more autonomy over what they're doing. Okay, and that, that's great. That's super articulated, thank you. And, and how, does, how does that correlate with product teams who takes ownership of those products, features, and like I said, the scale that's clearly coming with what Abu and the teams are doing, how are you able to, I guess, empower or allow people to take ownership of that and what, what sort of challenges might you get there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, obviously we are referring to the Conway's law here because I think we're describing an architecture and we are basically seeing that how what we the decisions that we are making on the architecture are actually affecting also the organization and the ways of working. Yeah. So in particular, as I described before, the teams have clear domain ownership and this is allowing them to make decisions more autonomously. We do have dependency, of course, because we are not in, a, in our end state yet, of course. We will never be potentially, you know, it's a journey. But the idea is that the more we move towards uh, loosely coupled systems and the more squads can work in autonomy without necessarily affecting each other. Mm -hmm. um, there will still be dependencies because obviously the moment that, in the moment that you publish an event into the event bus, there's still, there's still is, there is still a contract, right? It's not like you can't get rid of it, but we're making those dependencies more loosely coupled. So this means that the squads have the autonomy to basically to decide how they work. So this is also something that we we can see in their ways of working. Mm -hmm. So we also in that case, we can see we have a contract. So we agreed on the, what we call minimum viable agility. So okay. we have some sort of minimum requirements that. for a squad. Okay. So for example, we want the squads to have retrospectives or yeah. to track certain metrics. Now, over the last year or so, we've moved from a more traditional scrum where we used to track things like velocity, you know, and then do like you know the, the typical burn down chart that every everyone is using in the industry we started actually adopting more of the lean principles and okay. to kind of evolve our way of doing scrum uh, caring about different things so for example again bringing principles from lean like work in progress we care about 
how much work in progress we have so that we don't focus on too many things at the same time. Then, for example, we, the measures that we track are more related to cycle time and flow efficiency, for example, so that we actually, basically, we figure out how much time it takes for some piece of work to go from, you know, when people start working on it until it's ready to actually be used by, by the customers, really. And so we still use velocity, of course, because it's useful for, for planning, for example, but it's really some metric that is really meaningful only within the squad rather than necessarily outside of the squad. And um, again, uh, by giving autonomy to the different squads, what we achieve is that every squad, depending on what they're working on, for example, some squads are more experimental. They're maybe yeah. building A-B tests on the, on the website. Mm -hmm. Maybe some other squads are working on more long-term projects. So obviously, as you can see, we can't force the squads to use the same methodology because that wouldn't work for all the different scenarios. So we have squads still working in for nightly sprints, other squ uh, squads move to Kanban. Yeah. Some squads are doing weekly sprints with, for example, um, some planning at the beginning of the week to spot opportunities. That and is that squad preferences sometimes on what they feel works best for them? Yes, so the squads nice. are basically empowered to experiment, Good. to change their ways of working and, and then learn from what they are experimenting with. So as, as much as we experiment on the website with our customers, we yeah. also do that internally. So we nice. believe in experimentation a lot. Yeah. And just, just to uh, add to that, so we've got like a macro principle that we talk about a lot, which is adaptability over efficiency. So okay. like, we believe that instead of making everything the way we do Scrum or the way we build individual microservices, instead of standardizing them, we give the teams more freedom with guidelines in place um, about how to build and how they want to work yeah. so that they can adapt to their requirements, to their situation. And that yeah, okay. gives them more autonomy and more, I guess, more of a, I guess, a, um, what is it, more the ability to move faster than if they, everyone was working in the same way and they'd be constrained by that. Okay. I think one principle that I really like from a famous company that released a video a few years ago is that autonomy has to come with alignment, really. Yeah. So this means if you, if you define principles and you have some sort of mechanics for people to align and to not solve the same problems in different way, mm. then you can achieve real autonomy. But without that, it's only chaos, right? So. Fine. Okay. Um, I was actually going to ask, what, why do you think autonomy is so valued in product and engineering? It's maybe going off topic a little bit, but... Why do you think it's so valued? It's obviously working really well for you, other companies, but why do you feel it's so valuable for your own work and for others' work? In my opinion, it's one of the key motivators for people. So I think also I want to mention, you know, to quote someone else, I think like Daniel Pink in Drive is mentioning how intrinsic motivations are more important than extrinsic motivations, <laughs> in particular autonomy, mastery and purpose. Okay. In terms of purpose, obviously, we have a very clear purpose here and every squad by owning their domain also. They have a specific mission. They know what they're doing, how they're impacting our customers. Yeah. And autonomy is clearly one of them. So by owning a specific domain, you're really empowered to, to make a difference, you know, okay. to, to actually own that domain, to, yeah, to really be, become the domain expert and to know how that domain should evolve and to set your own vision. You know? okay. yeah. I think from a, from a, even from a technical point of view, I think, not having autonomy causes friction and yeah. it constrains teams' ability to evolve and adapt. Mm -hmm. um, and if you, if our requirements change, and we could be 
quite a fast, still quite a fast growing company. Um, our requirements change like every, I don't know, couple of weeks, for example, every, yeah. every quarter, definitely. Um, so we need to have the flexibility and, and the ability within our teams to adapt to those requirements and having autonomy, giving teams more autonomy in terms of which direction they want to go in um, allows them to do adapt that way. Yeah. Well, what I've felt speaking with you guys is there's a fantastic synergy between product engineering, leadership, customer service, other teams that are actually involved in the physical elements of being a part of Gusto. So you've, you've obviously created a really great culture. How, how do you guys stop yourselves from becoming single point of failures mm. from actually understanding your areas of specialism? You obviously know the architecture probably inside out. You've taken a real, if you like, not necessarily dominant role, but a, a role of really understanding what the product domains look like. So how do you stop that happening? And we talk about empowerment. How do you help create some of that? Yeah, I think we solve that probably in different ways. Um, yeah, so I'll go. I'll go for so my, um, I guess my role, as I said, is, is evolved quite a lot in the last couple of years. I think what my what I see myself and my role as being now is really upskilling people okay. and empowering them with the knowledge to be able to make decisions by themselves. Um, so like I. I do a lot of workshops, for example. So okay. um, last year I did what, what I call um, domain architecture and diversification workshops. Um, it's quite a mouthful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so basically we looked at um, with each squad what their, um, what their architecture looks like now, what systems they own, um, trying to apply the principles that we've got around um, event-driven architecture, uh, data bot heading, uh, some others. Um, to to their domain architecture okay. um, and projecting that forward five years from now. Obviously, we don't know what we're going to have five years from now, so mm. we can't define what our architecture looks like in five years today. Yeah. But really to give them um, an idea of where things might go with, okay. with the principles and the knowledge we have now. Um, and that really gives them like a, like every team's now got a kind of like I wouldn't call it a target, but like a roadmap of how their architecture might evolve mm. for their domains um, over the next year, next two years. Um, do a lot of workshops, do a lot of um, hackathons as well. So, for example, we okay. did a, a chaos engineering hackathon last year. So I talked about um, cool. uh, the fact that we, we had loads of these dependencies and it causes outages, and there was confusion and also a lack of knowledge in teams about what to look at, what to fix, yeah. um, how to get the site back up. Um, so we did a chaos engineering hackathon where myself and our platform lead James, um, we essentially created like a, um, a set of challenges. So, nice. um, so around sort of compute networking, I think it was, uh, database databases. And I can't remember there was another category. Um, we had different levels of challenges. So like a level one challenge would give you like one point, level two challenge yeah. would give you three points, level three challenge would give you five That's points. Quite cool. And we got the squads competing with each other. And what yeah. we would do is, depending on the category and the level of challenge we, they pick, we would go and break something, 
like they wouldn't know what we broke. We would go break something within their systems, yeah, and they would have to figure out and get it working again. Okay, um, and obviously the the higher the level, the more difficult it was to figure and out. Was it a speed thing or was it just a completion thing? As in, but but I mean both. So obviously completing it got you the points. Yeah. But the squads were competing uh, with each other, and there was a leaderboard. They win. Yeah, there was right. a leaderboard at the end, uh, and we would like basically. I mean, we kind of went overboard, but we had like a gong every time someone um, <laughs> backed number of points, um, and like they really became quite competitive. And the feedback we got at the end of the day was like they learned a lot because they were really engaged. Partly because they were competing against each other, so they actually really wanted to learn about how these systems yeah. work. Can, can they pull some of those pieces that they've built and actually use them in their in your product as well to to better? That's that that is got? exactly that's exactly the idea, and we we plan to run more of these um, hackathons this year. But the idea is the tools or the 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 knowledge they learn, the tools they um, build during the hackathons or. Uh, additional, I guess, monitoring capabilities they okay. put in are stuff they're going to use day to day for their, their their day job. Well, and James or someone could say, "Well, you lost to Team X. This is the dashboard <laughs> yeah. that you're using," and you're yeah. like, "Well, cheers, thanks." Yes. One of my what squads won, by the way. The same. Your, <laughs> one of yours won. Right, nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, what What about you? How do you so, How do you help the the yeah. teams? I guess be empowered, and you stop leadership yourself yeah i guess for just for some context when i joined um, i only had one team with a couple of engineers very small okay. and today we are we have three teams within my tribe i manage the tribe yeah. so we have three squads now so as you can imagine i wouldn't be able to do a good job if i if i was really hands-on with yeah. all the teams in particular for example around delivery in some respect with people management as mm -hmm. well so the only way to make this work is to actually help some of the people within the squads to take some of my responsibilities. Okay. So that's the main idea. And uh, the way I've been doing that is, what I believe is really empowerment and support. So what I believe is that you can't really just delegate and, and expect that people will figure everything out by themselves. You think you need to be there. You need to, you need to step back a little bit, right? And give people the right space. But then things will go wrong and you need to be there to, to be able to support. Yeah. So you need to have that balance that allows you to, to know what's going on, to be not too close to the detail, but to know what's going on so that you can help when things are going wrong. Okay. But um, so the, the way I think this can work, the only way I think this can work mm -hmm. is by being there to support. Yeah. Because if you just forget about it, you know, people will struggle. So I think my, my key point is support is key for successful delegation. Yeah. Really. I think consistency is a really big thing in it as well. Like creating, I find myself like working with teams, creating consistency as well is really important because I always find there are really good intentions to support people and give people an opportunity to be empowered. But if there's a lack of consistency in actually doing some of these things, it never sticks. Yeah. It never sticks. Um, I, I'm I'm really interested. What what's to come for you guys? Um, I guess I'll go first. So I guess from a technology general technology point of view, um, we've evolved our microservice architecture a lot um, yeah. over the last year or so. Like we've got a very good idea of how we want to build microservices now. Um, I think the key thing for us is. As we grow, knowing 
if we're being successful in building them the right way. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I'm actively working on now is gaining visibility into our, I guess, into our, I guess I call it platform health, but it's, it's not really the health of individual systems. It's more measuring how well we're building things okay. um, to first to get visibility and then get giving us giving having the visibility then allows you to see if we're moving in the right direction yeah allows you to see um where we've still got areas of weakness that we need to put more investment in okay. to improve our platform um so for example looking at basic things like looking at how many uh, I don't know, production incidents we're having every quarter yeah. and how quickly we're resolving them. Those are the easy things to measure to looking at how complex our systems are, which is a bit more abstract, like how, you can look at how many dependencies it has, how complex the code is. There's lots of layers um, of complexity that you can look at. So gaining visibility into those things is going to be quite important for us to make sure we're moving in the right direction. Uh, everyone talks about building lean software. I hope I'm not catching you off guard. How, how do you reduce some of that complexity? If you have dependencies, how do you reduce some of that complexity? And you talk about complex code, potentially. If there's maybe no documentation, people aren't with the business, from when they wrote the code, and I'm sure there's lots of other reasons, yeah. but how do you reduce some of that? I guess if we're talking about lean software, probably I'll give Andrea, because I think we do a lot of, I guess, um, discussion. We have a lot of discussions with engineers on how we build, how we minimize waste, don't over-engineer things. Um, do you want to? Yeah. So I guess in terms of lean, like you're saying, I think for me the idea is that it's important to have a vision of where we're going, but then we can't build that vision just yet. So we need to make you know, small steps to get towards okay. that vision. So it's important to understand what outcome you're trying to achieve right now. What is the minimum software we need to build? So that's the, the, the overall idea that we, that we really believe in. So this has a different effect depending on the area. So for example, if you are in the customer facing world, website or apps, Obviously, this translates into, for example, running A-B tests or painted door tests to validate our assumptions, mm -hmm. which means we can build them as tests and then actually build a proper solution only when we know uh, what our customers want. This, as you can imagine, the physical world, the supply chain world, that's completely different because you can't just run a test right in some code. You actually have to, these are as a actual implication on, on the, our factory, you know potentially buy new machines and stuff like that. So we have found also in that case, our ways around this problem to kind of um, agreeing upfront when build, when you know, wanting to build a new capability or new functionality, for example, mm -hmm. what is the minimum piece of software or piece of yeah. machinery, if you have to buy machinery, that we need to build in order for us to be able to learn from, from our customers or learn about the operational uh, issues that a new capability might introduce, for example. Um, so I don't know if we want a specific example, we've done that last year when we, we were looking nice. at how we wanted to, for example, improve the delivery convenience for our customers by reducing the lead time. Yeah. And obviously, as you can imagine, that is a huge piece of work in, involving a lot of different teams. 
but we managed to find a way for us to validate the concept by only allowing our customer care agents to, to place orders, for okay. example, on the next day. Yep. And this allowed us to actually understand the implications on our operations on only with a small percentage of our customer base. So this yep. is an, an example of how we applied Lean in the physical world, really. Okay, I like that. If, if you two have one piece of advice for an engineer, let's say stepping into the engineering world, or maybe if you're talking to one of your senior engineers, likewise for you, people in your squads and tribes, what's that one piece of advice you're giving someone today? Um, I think as an engineer, I've learned this over a very long period of time. I'm talking about like well, I'm still learning today. I've been in the industry 11 years now. Yeah. Um, is writing code is always the, I guess, the most expensive and difficult way to solve a problem. Okay. Um, I think as engineers, we always say, oh, we've got this problem. Let's go and write some code that will automate it or improve, improve it. And I think, obviously, Long term, yes, we want to automate, um, uh, I guess, manual processes or um, want to engineer things to be more scalable. But you'll need to validate what your problem is first um, and validate your assumptions around it. You need to understand the trade-offs of building it a certain way versus mm -hmm. having some workarounds in place that will allow you to get your product out to the customer faster. Yeah. So it's making sure you understand those trade-offs um, and validating those assumptions and having that product hat on, um, really. Okay. I, think. I was actually going to touch on a similar point. Um, I think I like the expression product engineer. I think my recommendation for engineers, I think, is try to understand why you're building what you're building. Mm. Try to engage with the outcome, with the customers, to understand really why we're building this product. And I think like as engineers, sometimes we forget that we are not writing code for our self-gratification. We're writing code to solve our customers' problems. So I think for me, that's essential when, especially when working in a company like, like ours, really. Maybe not that. all companies are the same, but definitely here, it's, it's very important. Yeah, I think you, yeah. you will have companies where in like you've got an entire team of engineers that just do I don't know um, play around with the new tech and yeah and do that I mean we we do that here like we've got tech ten percent um so every other Friday engineers can yeah. play around with new tech and learn new skills etc but ultimately we're a company that's growing and we want to build systems that our customers are both internal customers as well as yeah external customers and so we every engineer should have that sort of product hat on all yeah. the time, really, to make sure we're, as, as we talked about earlier, we're not over-engineering systems. We're building the minimum thing that we need to have a feature working and then evolve and iterate it and improve it. It's a lovely product, by the way. Uh, well, I'm a big food fan. So, um, Can you give us any gusto facts and figures, if at all you can give us any facts and figures about um, meals, deliveries, or anything. I'm not sure if you're able to, but if you're able to give us anything. You mean, I guess, customer-facing customer numbers. Customer-facing numbers. Uh, I think 
can't remember what so last it, that number's probably changed now but i think i did a talk last year at the microsoft news office in december yeah um where i think i said yeah it's one in every thousand dinners eaten in the uk is a gusto dinner nice. that number's smaller now uh, just in the last three months um yeah. by a couple of hundred um so we've grown a lot, but yeah, I don't know nice. what else what else can we say publicly. I'm not sure. <laughs> Should we expect big things this year? Yeah, I think so. Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, anything else that you guys want to add? No, I can't, uh, can't think of anything else. I mean, yeah, I guess one of, one of the things I've learned, as I said, over the last... Um, couple of years at Gusto is yeah in engineering is not about writing code it's about understanding your problems it's about understanding how to build things in a way that is right for the time um, yeah. so that you can prove its value and then improve it over time um, uh, I think that that's my, that's there's one thing that when I joined Gusto I didn't fully appreciate that I really appreciated in the last four years I, I, th I think <coughs> um the, the messages in the product as well, like food, I think is such a connection for so many people. And from talking to you guys here, there seems like there's a real synergy between everyone top down, down up. There, there's a real synergy. There's a real connection, engineering, product, people who are not necessarily involved, in, well, not, not involved, um, but getting involved in some of the code or the features. It's great. It's absolutely great to see. The one thing I wanted to add, I think, is as we're describing this very fast growth in this company, I think this comes with a lot of opportunity for the people yeah. that are here. This is really a tech company. Like we are describing how we are really shaping the whole company around tribes. And this means that for people, for engineers and for people working in tech, this is a massive opportunity for personal career growth mm. because as we scale we need people to step up and take on more and more responsibilities yeah and so yeah i mean for all the engineers that are re listening we are hiring so that's very important i was gonna say that you took my quote but yeah uh, what what are you guys hiring for at the moment a lot of different roles uh, a lot of different levels uh, from back end to front end mobile okay. engineering platform engineering product design data science and I can go on. Yeah, I, I guess we'll, we didn't talk about our tech stack, I guess. So we um, say that actually. Yeah, so we um, we run um, Python and Node.js. Okay. Uh, mostly we've got some legacy PHP stuff that but we're not we're not writing any new PHP. We obviously yep. have to maintain the existing ones. Um, but all of our new tech we build is Python and Node.js, whether it's using uh, in running containers on ECS or Lam we use Lambda functions quite a lot. I would say probably 60% of our code is now Lambdas in okay. AWS. So, um, and React on the front end. And React on the front end. Um, so those are, the, those are two sort of main languages that we use. Okay, do people need all of those skills? No, not necessarily. Obviously no, it depends no. in different yeah. brackets of yeah. roles. Yes. Um, okay, fine. Yeah, and we, we found all of our engineers who joined even if they only knew one language they picked up the other one really really easily there we have it guys thank you for joining us andrea abu cheerio we'll see you soon thank you thank you
Hey guys, thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.